spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts— to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. What did former President Donald Trump get right? Be very interested to see what your answers are to that question after I chat with a special guest and share with you the sum and substance of what someone else told me. But this is the way I think I should set this up. Um, In the week that I've been off, I paid close attention to the news and I saw President, former President Trump being newsworthy for two reasons. One, he's apparently sitting on about $100 million in campaign funds that he can use in the midterm election or on his own behalf should he choose to run again in 2024. A staggering sum of money that he has raised. Much of it, I should add, under false pretenses of this This is money he will raise to continue to fight the outcome of the 2020 election. Instead, I think he'll be using it forward-looking, not backward-looking. The second reason that he was in the news in the span of the last week is that the Washington Post reported that he turned to the acting attorney general and said, according to an aide to the then acting AG, uh, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me. The lead from that Washington Post story, Devlin Barrett and Josh Dawsey wrote it. Quote, President Donald Trump pressed senior Justice Department officials in late 2020 to, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and Republican lawmakers, according to stunning handwritten notes that illustrate how far the president was willing to go to prevent Joe Biden from taking office. Something else about the former president that caught my eye, I thought was really well done. Mike Madden of The Washington Post turned to about a half dozen well-credentialed, many in academia, uh, individuals, all with records of having been very critical of the Trump presidency and essentially said, tell us something good. Like, give him credit for something. And each, in turn, uh, although I note that, and you can see this, it's in my social media right now, it's posted at Smirconish.com under the headline, What Trump Got Right, each felt obliged to say, well, he was mistaken in X, Y, and Z, but okay, if you want me to say something, here it is. And I found the responses to be fascinating and, and crossing a variety of disciplines and issues. One written by Stephen Wertheim. 
Stephen Wertheim is a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, also is the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Hey, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Great to be with you. So what was the pitch? Like the Post comes to you and they say, come on, Stephen, tell us, tell us something. That was pretty much it. And uh, actually, they did this before the events of uh, January 6th. Uh, and oh, so we really? were looking at an outgoing president. I did not I and, did not know that they had sat on it for so long. How difficult was it for you to identify something that you could say, I agree with what he did on this? <laughs> you know, the most difficult thing was framing it correctly so that people would understand that I'm not trying to endorse Trump himself or Trump's foreign policy, which I've been consistently critical of throughout the Trump presidency. Uh, But I did understand over the course of the presidency that we were dealing with a different actor on foreign policy, somebody who had a different way of thinking about America's role in the world and speaking about it then did the establishment and did his predecessors. And so I knew that there were some elements of that that manifested in positive ways over the course of his presidency. And actually, I really did want a chance to acknowledge what those positive things were. Okay, so give me the verbal version. What did Donald Trump get right? Well, I think he, from the beginning, rejected and a consensus in Washington, that there's something out there called the international order, which not a whole lot of people can define very well, and that the United States has a right and duty to defend that order by force. He understood that that just didn't make sense, that you couldn't make sense of what American interests were in that equation if there was some large, abstraction, undefinable thing that we were supposed to uh, protect, uh, and that that would make the United States get into a lot of potential conflicts and commit force uh, in situations where actually we don't really have a stake. I've often said that it seems like our foreign policy for many, many decades under a variety of presidents has been dictated by this idea that wherever there might be a hot spot, we have a rote response to open a base. And in the mid-90s, I remember uh, playing the role of military tourist. I was invited by the Pentagon on Donald uh, Rumsfeld's watch. Uh, did I say mid-90s? Mid-2000s. It was 04 or 05, post 9-11. Um, I was invited to travel abroad, visit Middle East hot spots. I think it was 16,000 miles that we covered in the span of seven days. And one stands out in particular, and that was we went to the Horn of Africa. We went to Djibouti. Truth be told, Stephen, I had to look at a map to know where was Djibouti before I I left and and departed on that part of the trip. Um, But I wondered when I got there, why are we here? Why is there a base here? It seems like we have bases everywhere. And I think what you're saying is that Donald Trump was willing to defy that precedent of opening a base all over the globe. And reflexively using armed force uh, whenever there's some kind of a problem. Uh, He actually abstained from using force uh, on several occasions, uh, 
for example, in defense of Saudi Arabia. And one thing we saw that happened is when the United States didn't uh, defend countries that we probably shouldn't be defending in the first place, uh, they then get a little bit more modest in their behavior and start to use diplomacy to begin to solve the problems in their own region. And, you know, it's not just Trump, by the way. Barack Obama also coined the phrase, the blob, to describe this Washington playbook of reflexive militarism. So there's actually a, a kind of bipartisan uh, recognition of the problems with our foreign policy. It's a grand strategic problem, and you pointed to it really well. We just seem to want to dominate the world and scatter our forces in more than 800 bases across the world and divide the world into allies we're sworn to defend and implicit or explicit enemies. And our enemies are mounting. These are not wins for our national security. It actually makes us less safe to interject ourselves into so many conflicts around the world. Some might hear my conversation with Stephen Wertheim and say, you're giving him credit for not starting any new wars. Boy, that's a low bar. It's a low bar. Uh, I hate I to tell you, though, it's a significant bar. The last two presidents before Trump didn't clear it. George W. Bush invaded Iraq uh, and kept our troops in Afghanistan at past the point where they needed to be once we achieved the objectives we needed to achieve. Barack Obama launched uh, a war in tandem with NATO against Libya with disastrous effects as well. So I wish I could tell you that um, this bar is so low as to be irrelevant. Unfortunately, it is low, but it's relevant. And in addition to that, Trump also put the war in Afghanistan on a path to termination, one that his successor, Joe Biden, uh, is now complete. He's now completing. He's seen the wisdom of finally ending uh, that forever war because we clearly have no objective uh, in Afghanistan that can ever be verifiably fulfilled. So either we should stay there forever or we should leave. And I will give Trump credit for beginning that process of leaving. Stephen, that was really well done. Thank you for your willingness to come on and, and discuss that which you wrote for the Washington Post. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to talk with you. Stephen Wertheim's book, Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Okay, so there you go. He, he, I took notes, and of course I've read his essay. Donald Trump challenged reflexive militarism that has been a hallmark of U.S. foreign policy. There's something in the win column for Donald Trump. Are you prepared to call me momentarily and give the man credit for something, anything. It'll be the usual telephone number at 855-486-1776. But before, before I hear from all of you, earlier I spoke to another source, another expert relied upon by the Washington Post. He's been a guest here before on several occasions, Aaron David Miller. Roll it. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was a State Department analyst, negotiator, and advisor in Democratic and Republican administrations. He, too, was a contributor to this Washington Post piece, and he joins me now. Aaron, thanks so much for allowing me to intrude on your vacation. 
Michael, no, uh, not not a problem. Maine's beautiful this time of year. I'm sure oh, you know it certainly is. So the Washington Post reaches out and they say what? Hey, Aaron, could you say something nice about Donald Trump? I'm not sure that was the way it was framed. <laughs> it was framed, um, you know, if you looked at his administration without, uh, or at least you set aside your own biases and prejudices, could you come up with uh, a significant accomplishment that transcended um, the damage that he's done. That was not actually, that last point is was my add-on, not theirs. Uh, because, I, frankly, nothing uh, that he did in foreign policy or, or, frankly, at home of a positive nature compensated or outweighed the destruction and damage that his presidency wrought on, uh, on this republic. But looking at uh, foreign policy, uh, I think, Probably, uh, I would argue, almost definitely the most significant thing, the most enduring accomplishment were these Abraham Accords. And uh, I met with Jared Kushner in 2017 and 2018. He made it unmistakably clear to me that his father-in-law was going to essentially um, focus on Israel and the Arab states, much more interested, Michael, in what I call the 22-state solution, how to promote his relation with the Arab states, than he was the two-state solution. And then went about it with will and to some degree with uh, some political skill and determination to bring this about. I really like the spin that you put on it. Quote, Donald Trump, as you just referenced, was far less interested in a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a struggle that has outlasted every post-war president, far more in a 22-state outcome, normalizing Israel's relations with the Arab world, especially Persian Gulf countries. Will those, will those accords last? Will they outlast Donald Trump? Will they be relied upon not only by President Biden, but others going forward? I mean, the reason I think that uh, they'll have a, they'll have a shelf life, uh, although what what the nature of these relationships are going to be going to be uh, are unclear, is that the factors that drove them actually preceded Trump's presidency. Trump, in a way, jumped on a bus that had already left the station. <clears throat> Key Arab states were frustrated with the Palestinian issue, with the corruption and divisions within the Palestinian national movement. They were eager to pick up points in Washington, and perhaps most important, they. Had shared a common interest with the Israelis in countering a rising Iran. All of these things combined to make the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, um, which were the two actual signatories of the Abraham Accords, um, amenable to um, to risking whatever political backlash there would be at home and in the region for <clears throat> cutting a deal with Israel. Let's be let's be clear: the deal the Emiratis cut, frankly, in terms of warmth and intimacy relations. In uh, almost a year, has exceeded, frankly, in terms of trade and tourism. Um, both Egyptian-Israeli peace treaties and the Israeli-Jordanian peace treaties, which were strategic accomplishments that actually ended bloody conflicts. These did not do that, but they represented a, a new pragmatism, a willingness on, a part, on the part of the Arab states uh, to follow their own interests instead of being tied down by a Palestinian issue that showed uh, almost no signs and today still shows almost no signs of resolution. Okay, final question for Aaron David Miller. The casual observer says, wait a minute, we just had in the spring those bloody conflicts between Israel and the Palestinians, or more specifically Hamas. 
what did the Accords do to rid us of that kind of violence? And you would say what? They didn't do much. What they did was to survive. The key Arab state that brokered an end to the Israeli-Hamas mini-war, this is the fourth now in a decade between these two, was Egypt. It was not Bahrain, it was not Morocco, it was not Sudan, it was not the Emirates. So, no, they, they contributed very little to a resolution. But the, I think the takeaway here, Michael, is that these accords, accords survived uh, a emotional and turbulent, violent conflict in which there was an asymmetry of casualties, um, more more deaths on the Palestinian side, and the emergence of Jerusalem as a key issue which still resonates in the Arab world. That was the first test of the canary in the coal mine for these accords, and I suspect they're going to be around for quite some time to come. Okay, what's on the agenda today? A hike? It's a nice weather day. What, what's what, what's planned? You know, I just we have a house up here. I'm I'm working and uh, Zoom. Uh, I, like you, I'm a CNN contributor. Uh, you have your own show. I, you know, there's a lot going on. Uh, so part of the day will be spent working, uh, and part it's raining up here. We'll be, I think, just gazing at this extraordinary lake that that's about 50 yards from our house. So. It, it, it's a wonderful opportunity to escape COVID, to escape Washington, and to escape the craziness, um, you know, that still pervades the city. Less crazy now, I might add, Michael, than uh, over the course of the last four no years. Doubt. But, uh, but it, it, you know better than I. All right. Have a great day. Thank you again for allowing me to intrude. Oh, not a problem. Anytime. Your, your listeners are lucky to have you. Mike. You're nice Take to say care. that. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And as I mentioned, State Department analyst, negotiator and advisor in Democratic and Republican administrations. Now you've heard from two of these half dozen or so contributors to the Washington Post survey, which went to Trump critics and said, yeah, we know. We know he was a disaster. We know he will, quote, not be remembered by most Americans as a great president. But give us something. What did he do right? So you heard Stephen Wertheim say that he rejected the establishment consensus that the United States has the right and duty to guard international order by force. And you heard Aaron David Miller say, give him credit for the Abraham Accords. Saad Omer, who is the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health and a professor at the Yale University Schools of Medicine and Public Health, said, well, you got to give him credit for Operation Warp Speed because, quote, it is clear that this project was remarkably successful. It was led throughout by professionals with substantial experience and leveraged the resources of various federal agencies. Catherine Russ is a senior economist for international trade and finance for the White House Council of Economic Advisors, said Trump, and I note that each one of these people, and read the essays, they're not long, and you'll see what I'm referencing. They, they, they needed to first say, well, you know, he did X, Y, and Z wrong, but okay, if you're really forcing me, and in her case, she said, but Trump also changed the debate about non-market behavior like state subsidies And that was long overdue. Some allies quietly let the problem slide. Trump's trade war made that impossible. So all about the situation between the U.S. and China and other developing nations was an attribute. 
William Gale, who is William Gale? William Gale holds the Miller chair at the Brookings Institute, said ending the mortgage interest deduction on his watch was a good thing. Uh, Boy, remember this? Michael O'Hanlon from frequent guest of the program in the past, senior fellow and director of research at Brookings, uh, reminds that Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds force within Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, was the most important military chief in Iran and perhaps the country's second most powerful leader overall. Soleimani's machinations led to the deaths of hundreds of American troops in Iraq, largely because the Quds force funneled lethal devices and technology to militias and insurgents, yada, yada, yada. So it's hard to fault the Trump administration decision to kill him as he rode in a car in Baghdad in January of 2020. That's something Donald Trump did right. This is funny. Anna Marie Cox, who is the host of uh, Crooked Media's With Friends Like These podcast, said, you know what? He ended the nerd prom. He pretty much put an end to what had been the tradition, the, quote, warped annual White House Correspondent Association dinner, a.k.a. the nerd prom. As President Trump skipped the event for three years, holding political rallies outside the Beltway instead, somehow the dinner lumbered on, even as the guest list sank to the grimmest and most desperate Trump world characters, yada, yada, yada. Uh, It's a tacky tradition that is now dead. Scholarship can be funded in a way that doesn't trade in indignity, and it was never much fun anyway. I disagree with that last statement, but okay. Anna Marie Cox says he got rid of the nerd prom. How about this? This is a more serious point, and I thought this was one worthy of conversation. Geraldo Cadava, who was a professor of history and Latina and Latino studies at Northwestern, said he diversified the GOP. Quote, in 2016 and 2020, according to exit polls, Trump won respectively 28 and 32 percent of Latino votes, 27 and 34 percent of Asian American votes, 8 and 12 percent of black votes. It was a marked improvement among black voters from GOP nominees John McCain and Mitt Romney, who won only 4 and 6 percent respectively and roughly on par with their showings among Latinos and Asian Americans. In other words, Trump affirmed that Republicans can continue to win diverse support. And for that, Donald Trump deserves credit. All right, that's the full list, at least in summary form. Now you tell me, and maybe when we come back, there's going to be dead air. I don't know. Are you willing to do it? What did Donald Trump get right? The Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.